This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. create a field of study for black men and boys that I call Black Male Studies. And I created this by accident. Black Male Studies started off as an academic argument. I thought I was making an intervention into history by just trying to show people that black men were victims of rape during slavery and Jim Crow. And it was just that. It was only that. Just an academic argument. Until I started actually meeting black men who were victims of rape. Who were raped by their mother's friends, teenage girls, or other men who lived in their own neighborhoods. Your whole life changes when you hear grown black men holding back tears or speaking through the pain of physical, sexual, or domestic abuse at the hands of black men and women who should have loved them, cared for them, are at the most basic level, not harmful. But what theories do we have to explain this? What theories do we have to understand how black men and boys suffer? We often ignore the vulnerability of black men and boys in this society. We consume so many images of black males as dead flesh, as corpse lying in the street, that we become numb to all the factors in society that dehumanize black men and boys before their death. And the United States of America government, when it came to treating her citizens of Indian descent fairly, she failed. She put them on reservations. When it came to treating her citizens of Japanese descent fairly, she failed. She put them in internment prison camps. When it came to treating the citizens of African descent fairly, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God bless America? No, no, no. Not God bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, 
solutions and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. matters. Transforming truth, truth to power. One broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. And thank you for being with us here at Our Common Ground, the sanctuary where black truth is honored and respected. And I am Janice Graham. We're so pleased to have you with us. If you are listening on your smart device, you might want to join us in the chat room. There are seats available at blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. We have lots to do tonight, and um, I'll tell you about it uh, before I do. I do want to say that it should not be right with any of us in America tonight, January 30th, 2021, uh, one week after I passed uh, yet another trip around the world. Um, we are still in a raging pandemic despite vaccine being made available. And you should be talking with your personal medical services provider about what you should be doing about it, but we are admonishing you to be safe, to do a lot of hand washing, to keep a practice of social distancing, and to be cautious. Tonight, as we gather in this sanctuary, there are 25,697,000 cases of COVID-19 in the United States and and its territories. Uh, Currently, there are 97,561 people who live in America who are hospitalized as a result of an infection of the COVID-19 virus. And as we gather tonight, and we hope that you will remember that there are 430,120 American and U.S. residents that have died from this virus. We have a raging disconnect from our community into the vast regions of medical disparity. And we hope that you will keep yourself and your families safe. We start this broadcast each week with an update to remind you that it is still here. We also want to remind you that in the new U.S. government executive branch, there is a new president and new vice president. I don't don't know if we have mentioned vice presidents as much as we 
have mentioned the vice president, who the vice president is uh, since the um, election of Kamala Harris as the U.S. vice president, but we do. And I'm not going to fight against that. But we also need to be mindful that our government is not stable, that white nationalists and white supremacists and their ideology are embedded everywhere, and we all should have a sense that we need to be cautious, we need to be vigilant, and we need to be active in order for us to somehow bring this ship up. And if you've been with us um, regularly, you understand what I am referring to, that we have a government that has been overthrown by an international criminal cartel. And that cartel has been has found a home in the places that have caused us to be a target and a victim of white supremacy, the vestiges of our own slavery, and weakened in our struggle to overcome it, which has been for now near 400 years. But thank you for being with us, and we hope that we are able to shed some light on one more of the sparkling stars in our universe. Tonight, our topic, Black Masculinism. Say it with me, black masculinism, the black male studies agenda, the black male research agenda, the black male who we love as our sons, our uncles, our fathers, our brothers. And we're going to be talking with Dr. T. Hassan Johnson who is the founder of the Institute for Black Male Studies. And we will do so right after I share this with you. As you know that my education about black male research and the need for black male research and the gender issues within the black community have mostly come from reading and talking with our dear brother, who we miss so much, Dr. Tommy Curry, who is now um, at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. So it is real important for me to be able to shore up and highlight our discussion tonight with the first philosopher in America, who raised this issue, and you will remember that Tommy Curry probably has been on this program more than 12 times, 12 or 13 times. And let's hear what he has to say. Black men are coping with a very public and deliberate strategy to crucify them in America. These negations of black male life, 
causes depression, it causes stress, and poor health outcomes. That's why we die so early. Even when black men suffer depression, it can actually be masked by a high-level coping strategy that's often called John Henryism, whereby these men use work and an exhaustive dedication to specific goals to cope with the psychological and cultural assaults associated with their racial and sexual oppression. Those old black men who just sit on the steps, they don't say anything. They die before everyone else. Jim Sidanius is one of the leading scholars in social dominance theory. What his research has shown is that black men, as well as other outgroup men in Western patriarchal societies, are targets of lethal violence and extermination by dominant racial groups. This is a particular and unique type of oppression for racialized men that we often don't discuss. So then when we think of incarceration and police brutality, we're talking about strategies that have been cultivated in stereotypes that are propped up by cultures that rationalize black males as being dangerous from birth. So studies looking at the perceived formidability of black males have not only shown that black men are thought to be more dangerous and aggressive and larger, and even that black male sounding names trigger the survival instincts of whites, but even that preschool age black boys are tracked by their teacher's eyes more than any other group, even their black female counterparts. of black males has to, as Dr. Curry has guided us here at our common ground. It has to be uh, beyond stereotypes that have been established since African slavery, African slaves arrived on these shores with only one department of black male studies in the world, which is, was up until now in Scotland. The Institute for Black Male Studies offers everyone a chance to experience the field. Black Male Studies can be used multidisciplinarily to analyze film, art, dance, socioeconomics, literature, politics, social behavior, marriage, family, socialization, and many more areas across a variety of contexts. And our guest tonight is the founder of the Institute for Black Male Studies here in the United States, and it is the only type in the United States. We're going to be exploring with him, Dr. T. Hassan Johnson. What is black masculinism, and how does it figure in rearing, living with, protecting, and loving black men and boys. Let me uh, give you a sense of who he is. Our guest tonight, Dr. T. Hassan Johnson, is an associate professor of Africana Studies at California State University in Fresno. He earned his doctorate at Claremont Graduate University, his MA 
at Temple University and his BA at California State University. He's the developer of the concept of black masculinism and frequently publishes on anti-black misandry, anti-black male heterophobia, interracial misandry, and white supremacy. And I am so pleased to finally get him on our microphones. Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Oh, thank you for having me. How are you? Oh, good. I, I You know, I just want to say that I've been following you for a long time. And um, I actually was introduced to you by Dr. Curry, Tommy Curry. And Mm -hmm. so I've been reading things that you've been posting for for many years. And um, I I started really eyeing you when we lost Dr. Curry. And I've had a lot of discussions with him. (laughs) I mean, I could have him on Zoom. I could have him on uh, all that stuff. But... You know, I do the stuff in my PJs with. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm even when I was in a radio station, I might show up looking kind of sad, sad, crazy. <laughs> so, you know, I'm I'm really not into broadcasting um, and having the distraction of looking at myself. <laughs> so, okay, right. So thank you right. finally for for being with us. I, I, I think that what you are doing. And what really triggered I Gotta Do This is your founding of the Black Male, um, the Institute for Black Male uh, Studies. But mm-hmm. let's talk about the concept that you have come up with, black masculinism. What mm-hmm. is it and what triggered it? And I know it's steeped in the history of stereotypical black males and the scary bo- boogeyman, uh, right. the, you know. So tell us what it is. Well, it's, it's, it's both a method of analysis, uh, a gender movement, as well as a, a kind of gender performance that speaks to uh, addressing black men outside a stereotype while at the same time being very empirically driven. And as you point out, Dr. Tommy Curry has played a significant role in that process. So, you know, pushing toward empiricism, historical analyses that can be, uh, you know, checked on, that can be researched and verified, these kind of things um, become necessary for people who talk about and research black men because there really hasn't been a standard. There really hasn't been a standard. I've been in higher education from, uh, I'd say, 1992 to 2008. And when I came out with my doctorate and started teaching full time, one of the things I noticed is that when it came to gender, I didn't know how to talk about black men except in the way that I was trained to by several black feminist professors. So I only knew how to talk about black men in a fairly derogatory and almost inhumane fashion. They were, they were reduced to stereotype even from within that tradition in Africana studies. I taught a black male studies course, or it really was, a, it was called the black male experience, but I just taught it the way I was trained. Um, and what I noticed more than anything was my black male students leaving 
with their heads down every day. And I didn't know why until I really began to explore the language I was using, the references and the text that I was using, and I realized that they often weren't authored by black men, let alone black men who had come to, to grips with their own training, so to speak, in gender analyses, gender studies. So black masculinism came about organically in the classroom as a method of actually exploring how to talk about, analyze, and, and, and research black men outside of stereotype, outside of conjecture. And uh, that's one of the things that eventually put me in contact with Dr. Tommy Curry. I started a blog, which I still have, uh, called newblackmasculinities.wordpress.com, right? And when I started the blog, it initially was an assignment for the students in my class where they had to go out and interview a black male over the age of 40. And they actually had to paint a human picture of who this person was. And I can't tell you how much hate I got from people who, you know, were so angry at the various men interviewed. How dare you talk about him this way? He's this, he's that. And it amazed me just from students interviewing adult black men over 40. But that's what got it started. And then I began to do, you know, little film reviews. To be honest, what set it off there was uh, the death of Heavy D the rapper Heavy D, who I always regarded as a fairly progressive brother, and that was my first response piece, and I began to write, do film reviews and just things that I saw going on, and that's kind of when I met uh, Dr. Curry, and he kind of you know, really pushed me on empiricism. And from there, I began to develop black masculinism as a method of analysis, um, but I also began to link up with gender movements, uh, black male-based movements, that were already happening because all of this is really produced by the environment we're in. And so I just named it, but I named something that has been happening since before I was born and just really uh, has been coming out in a variety of different forms. So um, it's just an attempt to really begin to categorize and explain this black male experience from a vantage point that's not steeped in the historical narratives produced by racist uh, scholarship. Mm-hmm. Well, when we talk about black males, I know we're talking about our brothers, our uncles, our um, fathers, our grandsons, but let's talk some about what are these stereotypes and how you turn them around. And, of course, if you look at any contemporary history, about what's happening in our communities relative to um, our our government not understanding our response to the murder of black boys and men in the street by police because mm-hmm. we do understand something about the pathology of why police shoot black men but don't shoot white men. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exemplified uh, most especially by our, this recent uh, invasion of the Capitol, uh, where you can you can see grown white men walking around with with uh, high level weaponry, and uh, nothing really go down. And when I yeah, talk about and- the last five or six years of protests, one of the things I noticed is whenever you saw you know black led protests. 
if they were if the, if half the people protesting were men, the police were present, even if there were no weapons to be seen. And I mean present in in full riot gear armor. And I and and that's one of the things I've noticed. You know, just the presence of black men will initiate a militaristic response, but the presence of white men with weapons doesn't. Mhm, mhm. In your work, how do you find um, the generation? Say, I don't know what they call themselves. I don't think we've given them uh, young black boys who are between the ages of say eighteen and twenty-five. In your work, how do they perceive themselves? What are you talking about? Like Generation Z? I think that's that's right. Is that I what they call themselves? The, I, I don't that, know. <laughs> that might be the, the generation that we're talking about now. But in terms of, you know, so I've been teaching for 22, going on 23 years in higher education. And the students that I've been working with at Fresno State, um, first of all, the numbers are dropping dramatically, especially in regard to black males. I teach in the California State University system, which is the largest in the country. 70% of black males drop out their first year. And nobody cares. You know what I mean? Nobody cares. Across the country, there's about 10% by the eighth grade of black boys that are literate. And I've not heard anybody really, uh, you know, railing about this. It's, it's really been kind of accepted and left alone. But that said, when I deal with the, the young men that I do, uh, first and foremost, it's really trying to keep them in the space, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that many of them are still first generation. They don't always have a lot of family support. Uh, it's always, it, it's you know, it's not always an environment that's welcoming to them, or even attempts to be in many instances. Um, so when you get past all of that, one of the things I started was an organization. It's called the Onyx Blackmail Collective, and it basically was just a, a, an attempt um, to have some ongoing conversations that made them feel welcome, made them feel. Like the environment was 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 there for them, but also gave them an opportunity to voice their thoughts and concerns. And what I often found is they basically just felt unsupported across the board. I mean, in one vein, the university system barely acknowledged them, but would put them on websites and brochures to show that they diversified the campus. And then at the same time, many of the administrators would ignore them, and that includes some of the black administrators. You know, many of them would, would focus on, uh, you know, either this kind of multicultural ethnic approach where everybody needed to be represented, um, and that, you know, really didn't pay much attention to them specifically, um, or it was a focus on the young women, you know, because there's this basic basic assumption that, you know, the, the institutions are, are so so primarily against the women that they need that particular extra focus even though, you know, from what we understand, they're the most highest enrolled demographic in the country. So the boys fell through the cracks. And that's kind of what I noticed them feeling most. You know, the very first day, and I'll share this with you, the very first day I taught the very first black male studies course at Fresno State, before I even walked in the room, I got to the classroom, there were two people waiting for me. There was a detective and there was a military recruiter. One wanted to start my class off by asking men to drop out of school and go into the military. The other was looking for a gentleman that knocked over a liquor store and wanted me to go in the classroom, point him out, and then tell the detective which one, you know. 
That, that's the very first day. I hadn't even seen who was sitting in the classroom yet. And that's how a black male studies course was met on the very first day. So the environment that many of my young men find themselves in is, is, is hostile in a very veiled way at times, in a very brazen way at other times. So when you, when you apply this concept of black masculinism, to, to what degree do, generally, do black men identify that they are, are, are a specialized target? Uh, it, I mean, that's, that's usually not the hard part. I mean, I think many kind of get that sense. The, the problem is um, really getting them to understand why and what the context is, especially if they're younger. Now, some of my younger ones may have a problem with really coming to grips with the fact that they are a target. But at the end of the day, it becomes about explaining why, because many of them have learned to blame themselves, right? I didn't dress properly. I, I didn't use the king's English. I didn't care. You know, and we have to kind of get to this understanding that, you know, these things continue to happen to black males, you know, who carry themselves appropriately, who who act accordingly, and so on and so forth. And yet, they still find themselves under surveillance more often than not. They still find themselves mistreated by teachers and classrooms from uh, preschool all the way up through graduate school, you know, dehumanized in a variety of ways. So uh, it's really a matter of, you know, kind of helping to contextualize the nature of the attention they get mm-hmm. and why and what the historical narratives, narratives are. Um, but I haven't, you know, I've, I've, I've mostly found young men that do understand that they are the one being surveilled uh, it's just a matter of you know whether or not they've been able to talk to anybody about that, mm-hmm. and many and sometimes they haven't. Well, you know, it's it's really interesting that there's an intersection here in my mind uh, between uh, teaching or, or highlighting black boys and men uh, as as a parent because I think that. Uh, my my experience uh, as being a parent of a female was that in the teenage years it was always the inspiring inspire uh, push and 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 reach for excellence messages that I was always having to deliver and now mm. finding her as a parent with a teenager, uh, fresh, I guess a freshman in college is a teenager still, uh, <laughs> and, and, a young, uh, and, a, and a younger boy having to also talk to them about aspiration and inspiration and encouragement, but also talk to them about protection. Sure, sure. And, 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 and I want our listeners to really get the sense that that is what is going to be uh, paramount in understanding your work and the work of Dr. Uh, Tommy Curry, and that you have had to, how much research uh, has gone into this is to the extent that we are dedicated or have a consciousness about boys and men as targets, and also as victims. Let's talk about the victims, not just the victims hmm. of um, 
of the law enforcement and and, mm. and school uh, uh, environment, but also the victims of black men going to work, and 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 you know it, it the image of the black men as Dr. Curry um, talks about in the clip that I played the image of the black man who's sitting on the steps at the end of a work day Mm -hmm. and not having an avenue in which to express the kind of oppression and suppression that they have to uh, walk each and every day. So how, how, how is the black studies agenda going to address him? Well, I think he was referring specifically to John Henryism, right, where you have yes. black men who's, mm-hmm. who have been socialized in many ways to believe that their worth is solely in what they could produce, most particularly in regard to providing for a family. And so they, they, you know, they learn really from birth to prioritize others in a very particular way. Uh, you know, where it, it's a very self-sacrificial kind of narrative, but it ends up kind of um, debilitating many men in terms of being able to address and articulate their own needs, their own issues. Uh, they learn that they are not of importance. Their importance is in what they can do for others, which sounds great. On the surface, it sounds great, but actually it's very debilitating in many ways. And when you factor that against a society where you have in over 35 major cities, you know, unemployment for black men between 40 and 50 percent, and that's pre-COVID, right? That's pre-pandemic. And we know the pandemic, you know, by March of 2020, half of black America lost its employment. What does that mean for black men who are already 40 and 50 percent unemployed? You know, what does that mean for black men who are already leading the numbers on homelessness, especially if they've been previously incarcerated and even with housing vouchers couldn't find places to live because nobody would rent to them? You know, what, what does that mean for that population? You know, when you talk about this idea of John Henryism, their, their worth being in how well they produce and provide for others, yet they're in a system that doesn't acknowledge their humanity or give them an opportunity, you know, in any macro kind of way. What then does it mean to define yourself by what you can accomplish in the service of others? It becomes a very fraught and problematic space. And, mm-hmm. and again, but the you know, impl- many don't know how to talk about it. Yeah, but the implication, too, is that as a community, as a village, we have to reformat our thinking about what, we, what our expectations and our evaluation of the men in our lives should be and 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 to understand that essentially what we are doing is we are taking a a, a white model right. based on white economy based on white employment based on white socioeconomics and applying it in the way in which we live in our families and our communities. And that is another point of suppression. And and you all know what I'm talking about, so don't get stiff up here in this chat room. Uh, For instance, the whole notion, and you you just 
uh, highlighted it, Dr. Johnson, that we can't expect the same kind, we, we can't use the same economic barometer for people in our community as other groups do, specifically as, as, as white people do in this country. Because mm-hmm. a black man who is unable to earn has to be valued in other ways, in other with other means. Do you get what I'm saying? No, absolutely. And I think it's one of the problems that lends toward the degree to which John Henryism becomes a problem, right? Because, you know, the expectations, as you said, are rooted in a white standard, but they're nonetheless, you know, hyper-present. And this is a language we've heard, especially since the 1980s, right, where, you know, in order for black men to be considered uh, worthy of respect, they need to earn at least $100,000 a year, right? That, that's the kind of arbitrary in that system, kind of standard. Yes. Mm-hmm. In this system, right, and and the and the problem you have with that is, you know, really, you only have a certain select portion of, of men across race that earn that, right? You you, you know, uh, it, up till 2016, that was probably about 12 percent of men in general. So when you factor that against being black, that number automatically drops down to about five. So somehow, five percent of men now become the standard of mas- masculinity to be reached, you know, in order for there to be a respect given. I'll give you a, a, a case example. One of the exercises we do in, in my black male class is I ask the women what kinds of expectations young men that they date, young black men that they date have of them, and, and, you know, in terms of what's been articulated. And it's usually a variety of kind of random examples. When I ask the men the same question about the young women they date, they have a very staunch, critical bullet list of points that they need to reach. They need to be, you know, six figures is the first thing they always hear. You know, they need to earn six figures. They need to be taller than six feet. They have to have a six pack. You know, I won't go into penis length, but you get the idea. It's a very, and, they've, and this list has been repeated over and over again. The problem, however, is they are 17, 18, 19, and 20 years old, roughly speaking, the majority of the time. And they are being told that to date the girls they're sitting with in class, they need to be making six figures right now. So I don't know what 18-year-old is legally making six figures, but you can probably guess that what that does to black males who are being told they, they, they failed the standard, at a, at a standard that you know, 90, or close to 90% of the country fails at. Overall, and yet this is the standard imposed to them by the time they're 17. So we can also see how John Henryism can come about, um, you know, when really your worth is defined by what you earn. And even at a young age, you can see where that mentality comes from, right? So, yeah, it starts early. So are we transposing some of this to our black parenting uh, and uh, um, black feminist training study programs. What do you mean? Are we transferring? You talking about? Yeah, are we? Black- I mean, are women are the are, are women also 
you know, scholars, uh, professors, also incorporating the concepts, the, 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 the problems identified through black male studies into their own curriculums. I mean, who's seven? Who's, where is this being discussed? <laughs> That's well, what I, I want to know. To be honest with you, I think it's happening on your show <laughs> with the interviews with Tommy Curry and so on and so forth. And it's not, look, as you pointed out, there's only one department in the world, uh, physical department, right, and that's in Scotland, and it says quite a bit that Dr. Curry had to leave the boundaries of the United States to actually deal with the question of black men, most particularly North American black men, right? He actually had to leave the country to be able to, to, to deal with it. And I've had many a conversation with him, and we both had the same kinds of experiences in terms of of not even just entertaining these conversations in classrooms, because I've I've met young scholars who were fired just for having myself or Tommy uh, skyped into a class, you know, to lecture, right? So not only is that happening, but you know, Tommy has to leave the country in order for that to happen, and I have to build this institute outside of the framework of the traditional academic environment because it's been unwelcome. There are only a handful of black male scholars who are even willing to publicly deal with this. But, you know, there are some who've lost their jobs. I've met graduate students who, you know, became interested in some of the concepts and were somehow released from their programs without completing their degrees. I mean, this is not, this, this is considered highly controversial as the, as the Prince song you, you were playing implies. <laughs> you got uh, that part, huh? Oh yeah, oh yeah. You know, I started laughing. I started laughing. I said, "She got it." (laughs) It's highly controversial. It's not, you know, it's not been received. And by and large, black men who espouse interest in these areas will find themselves hitting a glass ceiling in many instances uh, in terms of what happens with their careers as academics when they engage this. So you have to be very strategic in doing so because the hostility will come from both, uh, you know, the white majority in the academy and the black minority. It's not limited to any mm-hmm. one group. You know, back in 2009, we did a broadcast, and I called it Black Male Feminists. And mm-hmm. it was actually a four-day. That was when we were doing Monday through Friday broadcast, And it was a, a four-day uh, forum uh, with mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Mark Anthony Neal um, and some others who uh, were male, black males who were uh, delving into and trying to understand how feminism fitted into a black liberation theology. Okay. So um, one of the things let's talk about is the controversy. Why mm-hmm. would this, I mean, because the, the the nexus of all of this is that we are dealing with many both socioeconomic, uh, social service delivery programs and political ideology and we continue to base it on a model that seeped in uh, white supremacy 
ideology and models that white people use for both neoliberalism and other things. And, and, and it just doesn't seem to me that it is not that controversial to be able to develop a model which is more Afrocentric uh, for us to have better victories and more successes in our lives. So let's talk about the controversy. I mean, first of all, I got a lot of pushback when I first started bringing um, Tommy Curry on. I got a lot of uh-huh. pushback from the black feminine, black male feminist uh, forums that I did back in 2009. Uh-huh. But one of the things I'm not understanding is that as a black womanist, uh, why there is controversy around doing the research so that we can have a more successful and conscious uh, model of how we interact with each other. I mean, mm-hmm. the protection of black men and, and black women, black men and black boys, uh, the understanding of how you disassemble the stereotypes seems to me pretty straightforward. Well, you would think it would be, um, but there's a lot of politics involved, and one of the primary ones is the role of feminism, as you well know. Um, And, you know, if you look at the works of somebody like a Dr. Bobby Wright, um, you know, black psychologist in the 1980s, who one of his key lectures is still on YouTube, I implore people to go watch it, one of the things he talked about was what unraveled the, you know, the, the, the black power movement, black consciousness movement in the 1970s, and he's talking about this in the 1980s. And, and he lists several different causes, but the first one he lists is the impact of feminism. And he talked about the way in which you know, white women you know, kind of appropriated this idea of what it meant to be a black feminist by imposing an idea of feminism that situates men against women and women against men in terms of identifying what it means to be a liberated uh, woman at that time. And this idea has persisted. But one of the things that Dr. Curry has recently done, which I did an episode of my show, The Onyx Report, on YouTube, I interviewed him there. He did a brilliant paper where he actually traced where the, the transmission took place most. And he called it a subculture of violence theory. And one of the things he argued was that very early on in the 19, especially in the 50s through the 70s, you had racist scholarship being produced, and he actually names the particular scholars, and then he identifies the ways in which they permeated stereotypes of black men that were not empirically based. And then he goes to the, through the, the, the work of early black feminists who are appropriating and citing this racist scholarship as the starting point for how to conceptualize black men in the lives of black women. So this subculture of violence theory is applied to how black men are understood very early on by black feminists. Now, black feminists were, you know, for the most part, a relatively small and obscure group. I mean, you had to have really gone to college in the 19, early 1980s to even really be introduced to black feminism 
at least until you get to an Oprah Winfrey. And women like Oprah in position began to transmit some of these ideas across popular culture. And this was the era, era I came up with, and I saw this even in my own family. So you had, you had people articulating black feminist talking points who had never heard of bell hooks, you know what I mean, who had never heard of some of the more prominent black feminists, but they knew the talking points primarily through popular culture. And that being said, you kind of had this ground level you know, kind of feminism that was also accompanied by um, opportunities to transition into middle-class life via higher education. So from 1976 to at least 2019, uh, one of the things I've been able to, you know, create some data on and illustrate in my work is black men have gotten half the college degrees of black women in that time period, mainly because we were barred, especially when you start to talk about incarceration and the war on drugs, we really didn't get to participate to that degree. So you had women transitioning into higher education. Higher education, especially in the late 70s, was presented as the entranceway to the middle class more than ever. And, then, and from there, this major split, not only ideologically between black men and women, but also through lived experience, this vastly different experience in terms of negotiating American life. And with that split in place, the ideas about, you know, how feminism, black feminism sees black men become, become well, far more ensconced. And, then, and so when you, you get to the university and you fast forward to the 2000s, it is heresy to be critical of feminism. Feminism at this point is almost a religion. I mean, even when I was in undergrad, you could take a literature course that was essentially a black feminist literature course, and it didn't have to be titled such. Because you just it, that was it was such an acceptable part of the narrative, it didn't matter. So I've I've had several black feminist courses that had nothing to do with whether or not you were in gender studies, but never one course on black men using a standard uh, for of research that's propagated from a black male experiential standpoint. So in other words, if you're going to be a professional dealing with gender there really is only one ideology that's considered acceptable. I mean, even womanism, I've been teaching womanism for the last 15 years. It's met with with hostility. It's not received well. You know what I mean? And it's why especially is that? depending on the why university you're in place. Well, one of, the, one of the critical differences we know between, you know, black feminism and black or Africana womanism is an approach to how they see the black family and most particularly black males. And one of, the, one of the things we've seen with early womanism was, an, was the idea that men are not the cause of the problem. White supremacy is the cause of the problem, and men have not, black men have not benefited from this idea of patriarchy because that's one of the kind of you know, statements put forth by black feminists, that men, black men have benefited from patriarchy. But when you actually go to the data, and this is why in the clip you played with Dr. Curry talking about Jim Sedanius' work, he actually points out and empirically, the men are actually under threat, more so because they're black men, not less so. So when you, so womanists kind of factored that without using the same kind of language as Sedanius and made the argument that, you know, it's not that black men have benefited from patriarchy and are oppressing us. We both stood on the auction blocks together. That's, you know, more kind of been, so it's more of a black family approach when you start to talk about womanism. But feminism kind of regards the woman as an isolated object or, or subject, so to speak, and, and the ways in which the society 
and black men have sought to oppress her. So that kind of adversarial stance, you know, became one of the critical points of, of concern. And then when you factor in that, again, going through – like, this is one of the things I noticed. When you go through gender studies, again, there's one ideology. That would be like if you got a degree in black studies and the only accepted way of, of studying black studies was, you know, and it could be anything. I'm just going to be arbitrary here. Uh, let's say we're going to take, um, you know, uh, we could take a pan-Africanist approach, right? That It would be like saying the only type of black studies you could do is pan-African. Well, some people wouldn't have a problem with that, but we know it's far more varied than that. You got everything from black Marxists to, you know, I mean, you can name how many different approaches to studying black studies there are, and there's a wide variety. But somehow when you come into gender studies, there really isn't anything acceptable outside of feminism. And that's, how, that's, a, that's an issue unto itself. So even, even among men, who get degrees and are, are dallying to one degree or another in gender studies, many of us were only trained in black feminism. So by the time I completed my doctorate, that was the only thing I could talk about in regard to gender. And that's what I meant when I started this by saying when I taught this black male studies course, I taught it from a black feminist standpoint because that's the only thing I had been trained in. And when I began to ask questions, that weren't answered by black feminism, it led me on this, this whole different rabbit hole to find out what actually else was out there. But it was nothing I was introduced to in the academy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, and what you're hoping is that the black studies agenda at the Institute will be able to bring some new light uh, be incorporated into some of the I, I I don't you know the black feminism thing makes the hairs on my arms jump up, but, but to be able to incorporate it into race gender studies. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm and I'm doing it in an environment where there's there's no grades, there's no. There's no homework is voluntary. You know, there's no degree. It's really just an opportunity to study the field. Because here's the thing I noticed. Mm -hmm. Even if even if there was a university that said, you know what, we will open up a black studies department in the United States, even if there was. Uh, Now, we know COVID impacted things so dramatically. Universities are reeling. Everybody's teaching online. Discussions about starting new departments right now are probably not you know, happening on any wide level. But let's say a university does. That's great. But then the problem becomes that's only happening at that university. So, you know, some university in Iowa or Ohio or something produces it, that's great. But that just means that those students get to benefit. And, you know, so I decided it would be good, especially in this COVID environment, so since everybody's in the house anyway, let me put this out there and make it accessible. And my goal is to really get people talking and exchanging ideas while also pushing each other on what practical kinds of things we can do to extend the discussion about black men outside of this subculture of violence approach. Right? And, then on, and then one of the things I'm going to be doing is creating additional courses and, uh, and, and trainings around sexual harassment around sexual victimization and looking at black men from those standpoints. So I'm hoping that teachers 
uh, social workers, anybody dealing with a population of black males will be able to come in, uh, take those courses, and get uh, a notarized letter, um, you know, with my name on it saying that this person has completed this particular training so that we can begin to diversify how these approaches are, are you know, are, are approached. I mean, I mean, I even taught, uh, there was one year I was invited by a suicide um, hotline uh, to come in and lecture to their group of operators to talk about male sexual victimization. And by the time I was done, uh, the operators were blown away and incensed that they had not been told that information, and I'd since not been invited back. So there's an investment in keeping a one-way narrative that really looks, really, you know, ignores male victims, let alone black male victims. And so I want to get that information out and make it more accessible, and that's and that's definitely my hope. So we can begin to change this conversation. So one of the things I noticed, for example, last at the end of last fall, leading up to the elections, did you see anywhere a list of black male political concerns? Have you have you run across one? Not specifically, no, I didn't. A good point. Most people have it. And yet, you know, I mean, we could, we would, we would be catered to when they had this, you know, what was the the commercial they had on, you know, something about stripping on the pole, and they had strippers trying to get black men to go vote, and and I think Biden was trying to have barbershop talks, and you know, they wanted to have the appearance of dialoguing with black men about their political needs and issues, but not actually doing so. And and for the well, most part, well, I was going to ask seen, you about Obama's initiative. My brother's keeper is that dead? Did mm-hmm. it go away? Did it? it did, um, but that was. I always had the sense that that was targeted toward um, uh, what you might call a, a middle class black boys and and men uh, who aspired college education and professional careers as opposed to the large population of black boys and men who will never see inside of a college uh, classroom, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Who, just want, who just want a job to make enough money to feed their families. And, you know, and it gets to the point, um, Hassan, that um, you begin to have to ask the question, all over the place. What black people are you talking about? You know, well, <laughs> I ask that well, question all the time because there mm-hmm. there is a very small black middle class. There mm-hmm. are seven black billionaires in the country, in this country. Mm-hmm. And they are nowhere near the income and the income of middle class of what you might call middle class black people six figures is nowhere near that and it gets larger and larger when you start talking about black people who are mired in poverty and mm-hmm. i think that we have to think through who we who we are talking about uh, in the context of all of this, because you know, I know you know everybody. Calm down, don't get your thing. We do not live in the Twitterverse. Mm. Twitter is not what you read on Twitter is not 
uh, a, rep- a fair representation or even an equal representation of the black men and women who struggle to bring solutions to our community. So mm-hmm. I want everybody to understand that's where I'm coming from, that in programs, you know, um, uh, Dr. Ray, Raymond Wimbush, who has been a long and good friend, um, mm. he he did his um, first book uh, when he was still at Fisk and always had a black male um, status uh, agenda item at the Institute for Race Relations while he was at Fisk. And he wrote his first book, and it's um, uh, it, it was really about uh, black boys becoming ma- um, entering into manhood, and I mm-hmm. don't think that we've had successfully any programs that assist black boys and and men in overcoming some of these stereotypes and. My point about Obama's My Brother's Keeper was not one of those programs. Um, well, and some and some of our community programs have, you know, manhood programs have fallen by the wayside. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know some mm-hmm. of the frats, uh, the alphas have whatever, and the kappas have whatever, but it's sometimes a, a one-shot deal. So it's yeah, it's kind I, of I like the idea. Yeah. I, I I like the idea of 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 bringing the black male studies agenda to people who can incorporate it into strategy programmatic strategies like social workers that you that you mentioned and I'm wondering if black doctors are doing it. I'm wondering if there are other places where that can be fertilized for the results uh for, for there to be some some you know it's it's almost like training people for jobs that don't exist mm-hmm. and i'm wondering if we can you know the pe- the people that will go through your institute and have the information men who will be um empowered by exploring and discovering their blackness and Mm -hmm. who they are as black citizens in this country, where they go to, to, for an, for, as a portal, once they do that. Well, my hope is that, um, they will be able to take the information and most particularly the theories and the data and be able to apply it to whatever area they're in. Right. Because, mm-hmm. it, you know, I, I have no idea what spaces these men are. These, it was not even just men. It's men. And what I typically get typically get are either black males themselves or I get mothers of sons. So those are the two groups that come uh, the most fervently. So my hope is that they'll be able to take what they've, gotten and create from that wherever they are 
But to answer your other question about Obama and the, the you know what you talked about in regard to um, the, the the program he's he pushed, um, the problem with that is is it was it was really targeted around boys of color. We have this. See, this is one of the problems. We have this hesitation about actually speaking about black males directly or developing programs for black males. I've seen this locally. I've seen this on my campus. I've seen this nationally. Anytime there's a discussion mm-hmm. about black males, we have to, quote, unquote, diversify it to suit everybody. And what ends up happening is black males end up getting the least amount of support. And I've even seen mm-hmm. this with, with pro- programs targeted at black students, even at my own university, where it, it ends up becoming either a program for everybody or it becomes a program targeted at black girls mainly because the predominant group implementing these programs are, you know, black women. So this kind of, it just kind of organically happens, and boys end up being the least represented in the programs that started out being designed for them. Now, the other problem yeah, with Obama's yeah. venture is it wasn't federally funded. He kind of made it based on philanthropic support, and then it became about boys of color. And I, to my knowledge, it's still around, but I, it didn't meet the promise that many of us hoped it would, and it fell far short from a White House Council for Men and Boys that many in the, the men's rights uh, community hoped that it would be, even though we've had a White House Council for Women and Girls. So those are the kind of things that I think are still being pushed for uh, by, on a variety of levels from different groups. But the focus on black males, people still have a hard time with that. Hell, even black mm-hmm. male scholars have a hard time with that. I can show you black male scholars that will sidestep saying black male because they don't want to, you know, get any pushback from people. So if they want to talk about black males, they'll, you know, they'll try and go into this kind of, you know, everybody framework because, uh, because targeting black males has become, you know, in the last decade, we've seen this language of toxic masculinity. We've seen this language of pushing uh, attacking patriarchy and somehow discussing black men or black males of any age, that alone is viewed as, is viewed as a misogynist act. It, it's, mm-hmm. it's viewed as an inherently problematic gesture. So if you're going to talk about black boys, you have to talk about black girls. Then you have to talk about girls and boys of color. Then you have to talk about everybody, and it ends up becoming something that helps everybody but black males. Well, you know, it's it's clear that the stereotype is embedded even in our community. Dr. Johnson, we're going to take a break, and for those of you who are listening, we're going to take a break. We hope that you stay with us because on the other side of this break, we're going to be talking about the controversy because personally, as a grandmother of two wonderful grandsons, I want to hear about some black boy power, black boy magic uh, going on in this country. Thank you for being with us. You're listening to Our Common Ground tonight, Black Masculinism, the Black Male Studies Agenda with Dr. T. Hassan Johnson, the founder of the Institute for Black Male Studies. We'll be right back. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Stay tuned and we'll be right back with more. 
It's amazing how people can come together by spending time apart. Quest Diagnostics thanks you for doing your part to stop the spread of the coronavirus through social distancing and proper hygiene. At Quest, we're doing our part by establishing COVID-19 lab testing capabilities across the country to better serve our communities and healthcare providers. If you suspect you have COVID-19, talk to a healthcare provider and let's keep doing our part so we can all come back together stronger than ever. Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals, the United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, we had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. If Republicans are playing cutthroat politics, why are the Democrats playing that? And why can't they be on the offensive? And that, that's the first thing. Here's the second charge. You've got the Republicans beating this old message of debt. You got Mitt Romney standing in front of a dead clock now. And that will be the narrative. And the Democrats, you don't see this coming? You don't see this narrative coming as they force another death fight. As they The best of political talkback, common sense, right from the concrete. Urban, progressive, politics, politics, politics. Friday night at TruthWorks Network. 10 p.m., Alpha drills down deep the lies, the conspiracies in politics. It's just damn politics. The Alpha Show. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time.
got to start listening. And I want to ask you, uh, for all of you out there, if you will shoot a, a text or uh, email or a Twitter or post on your Facebook page, support for uh, U.S. Representative of Missouri, Cory Bush, who was essentially attacked um, by this Nazi that is a U.S. representative from Georgia, Marjorie Green, uh, in the uh, tunnel at the U.S. Senate building on last week. Uh, You know, we got to have people's back. People that have our back, we have to have their back. And so I'm asking you to... uh, Raise the, keep the issue raised. The the other is the good question is who wants to go to work um, and have to deal with uh, a, a white supremacist every day, and why should a, a declared white supremacist and Q crazy person and Traitors and seditionists have the right to sit in our Congress. Uh, I, w- I want you to think about that. The other thing I want to remind you that Alpha, the Alpha show, is at TruthWorks Network every Friday night. And thank you, Alpha. I know you're out there um, for a great show last night. I, I listened and I had to staple my hands down to keep from calling in, uh, but it was a terrific show because, you know, the Alpha understands the underpinnings of what's happening politically. You know, he learned a lot of stuff when he was on that bread truck delivering bread all over the city of uh, Chicago. He doesn't have a Ph.D., but he has a common-sense radar. Uh, on what is happening in U.S. politics. And uh, he's 10 p.m., TruthWorks Network, which is our other channel, and we are looking at bringing the two channels together. I don't know how that's going to work, but we're looking at it. The other thing is on Monday, it is the first day of February. And as you know, we always try to uh, get with Carter G. Woodson and celebrate uh, Black History Month where the nation, some of the nation, is um, has their ear down for celebrating the achievements and the, and the victories of black people in this country. So what we are going to do this year is that On our Saturday shows, we are going to be looking at those things which have been an impediment to um, our struggle for citizenship in this country. And we're going to start off by looking next Saturday at lynching by an actual person who was lynched because it is a ritual of white supremacy in America. And we're going to be looking at voter suppression 
and we're going to be looking at the black media on the third week of the month. And the fourth week, we'll do the regular thing, you know, the thing y'all like, um, you know, Martin Luther King and and Frederick Douglass, and we'll do a little, you know, of course we're going to do Ida B. Wells, and we're going to do some um, some people that you don't know. So hang with us on Saturday nights at 10 p.m. for our Black History lineup. The other thing that we are doing for black history is we've called on our political education contributor. I mean, if MSNBC has contributors, I got his contributors. Dr. Johnson with us tonight, he's going to be a contributor. So, you know, I, I have all these contributors over 34 years of broadcasting. Some of them are now gone, uh, but, mm. you know, we are – we are still using them and their contribution. So on every Wednesday night, starting on February 4th, we are kicking off our The History of Black Political Movements in America lecture series. It's a lecture. It's a, you know, a lecture is a lesson, you get information. So with Dr. James L. Taylor of the University of San Francisco, he's the chair of the uh, Department of Politics, and you know him. He is here with us a lot. He he actually sat in for me on one of our broadcasts, and he's going to be doing in a four-part lecture series, four weeks, the history of black political movements in America, starting with Reconstruction, moving to the Jim Crow era, which would be the second week. The third would, week would be the Civil Rights era. The fourth week would be the Black Power era through the election of Barack Obama. So I hope you will join us. It will be at not 10 p.m. It will be at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, starting on February 4th, the history of black political movements in America. And that brings me on, as we continue our discussion with uh Dr. Johnson, the founder of the Institute for Black Male Studies, if you're just joining us, uh, Dr. Johnson, I want to talk about whether or not what we see is controversy in looking and studying black males, whether it's contra- uh, uh, co- controversy, is it steeped in competition and continuing fear of black men? Well, definitely a continuing fear, without question, Um I think that's been one of the major issues that undergirds uh, everything from lynching, as you pointed out, to the the development of black theoretical ideas, black movements that are unapologetically um, questioning the status quo without any oversight uh, by that very status quo. I think that fear you're talking about 
is very much a part of that. And so this is one of the reasons why it, you'll be hard-pressed to find, find even black male scholars who are willing to kind of do this work because it's a direct threat to the, 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 the longevity of their careers. You know, I can't tell you how many black men, black academics, reach out to me in private to tell me how much they appreciate what myself or what Dr. Curry is doing, Dr. Ronald Neal, you know, a few others, but they themselves, as much as they agree, can't afford to say anything because they're worried about being fired. They're worried about being, uh, quote-unquote, blackballed, uh, you know, it, it, wherever they already are. So this is, this is definitely about a fear of not only black men in a physical sense, but a fear of what black men will say, do, or even think. Okay. Um, so uh, let's, let's talk about the truth about that fear and how it exists and how it operates within our own community. Um, I think, well, one of the things that uh, I do, and most particularly on my, my show, The Onyx Report, uh, that's every week, uh, one of the things I talk about is the way that we reexamine the, how the black community is framed from a black masculinist standpoint. And one of the things that I started talking about a few years ago is how, in many ways, the black community has, for a good period of time, been more of a gynocracy than anything else. Uh, we know a matriarchy is mother-centered. A gynocracy is really more female-centered because it kind of happens across age. But the way our family structures have been, most particularly in the last 50-odd years, to even how our political formations, are, you know, our electoral formations, what we're finding more often than not is that um, we have a structure that prioritizes women and girls in a way that we're not really – talking about we don't really engage it and i think you've seen a lot of it just in this last uh, uh time period with the the rise of kamala harris um there was an interesting post i kind of put up today looking at the differences between how she and obama have been received based on this notion of a gynocracy in our community so for example one of the things i've argued for the longest is that you know when we talk about you know, say, for example, electoral patterns in the black community, we know that black women vote Democrat higher than any other demographic. Black men vote to the second highest degrees, especially when you factor in issues like voter disenfranchisement, right, that nobody really deals with to the extent that black males do. But we still vote to the second highest degrees, and yet black men have not been made a priority in any major election that I've been aware of during my lifetime despite that we're the second highest voting group in that demographic. Or if you look at going back to Kamala, right, this whole issue of, you know, you know debating the, the impact of her interracial marriage and what that means. And one of the things I pointed out when you looked at Obama, you know, there was a, a, a sea, a, a, a tidal wave of support, especially by black women for Barack Obama. But one of the things I've argued for the longest is black women didn't really vote for Barack Obama. They voted for Michelle. And one of the ways we saw that, you know, kind of manifest is you didn't hear the same kind of language about Kamala that you did about Barack. I remember those discussions. They were very much tied to him being with 
a black woman, particularly one who was a direct descendant of American slavery. But with Kamala, there's been no such language. And yet it's been a celebration of her despite the policies that both she and Biden initiated, most particularly against black males. That was the most disrespectful ticket I had ever seen when it came to policy about black males in terms of the track record of both Biden and and Harris. And yet mm-hmm. we were we were told to just be quiet and vote, shut up and put it on the, you know, and, and it was okay. so patronizing, which, which was one of the reasons that I did create a black male political agenda with over 10,000 black men's support in terms of articulating what black male issues, political issues there were. And I put that on my blog because there was no space to have that discussion according to what we were told. You know, I, I, I'll let you go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, no. I, I want you to amplify. It was a good lead-in uh, to amplify. Uh, but there are many people who may be listening who may need some guidance on um, what you mean, your, your your statement about this particular slate of candidates who were elected. How were okay. they? Okay. Yeah. You said how? I, you said how? What? How? How were they? The most disrespectful of black ah, males. Okay. Well, we know in terms of Biden's work on the the, the crime bill, and in terms of uh, Harris's work in San Francisco, right? In terms of her carceral policies that overwhelmingly impacted black males, I. I didn't see a candidate that would vie for black males in any kind of critical or systemic way. I didn't see a track record that supported that they would, or even that they would prioritize the black community outside of symbolic, you know, representation. Um, I didn't see any critical policy that really said we were going to, you know, really examine black, how black males have been treated and really challenge that. But to be, to be, to, to be fair, to some extent, it's a question of, as to whether or not that was even posed to them to the degree I think it should have been. And I think a lot of the reason for that is we really haven't framed how to go about advocating for black males politically. Black males have not really been made uh, a, a political requirement in terms of addressing the quality of their lives, despite that their faces have been all over the news, most especially in the last year, but Definitely in the last five, going back to Trayvon Martin, right? despite how many black male faces you see dying at the hands of police officers and vigilantes, black males have been great for granting exposure to all kinds of groups who have political agendas, but none of those political agendas actually have policy proposed to prevent these kind of things from happening to black males, nor do they seem to really push it, but they have no problem using black male faces and black male deaths to advance themselves. And I think that was actually part of the underlying, you know, kind of bid uh, for Biden and Harris. I mean, I think Harris was, made, was, was especially picked because of the last year, most especially in regard to the treatment of black folk in the news, and again, particularly black males. But, you know, was there any critically, critical policy put on the agenda to stem the numbers of black males most especially killed. And why do I say black males? Well, when you look at police violence, we know 
that there's roughly about two to 300 black males that die per year by the, at the hands of police officers. That doesn't even include hate crimes and vigilante violence. That's just police. There's about nine to 12 black women who are killed every year. So this is overwhelmingly a black male issue, and yet very few people are willing to even say that aloud, let alone talk about policy that specifically and unapologetically targets black male victims and how to prevent there being more. That's not happening anywhere near so, the degree it needs to be. So let me ask you, and I, and I do want to talk about, uh, because I find it very uh, intriguing, your black, uh, black male agenda, uh, political agenda, but let me ask you, if there were organizations, black men's organizations, who should have been advocating but didn't. One of the problems that you find with black male-led groups, kind of like what you referred to earlier when you were talking about, um, I think you were talking more about like uh, rites of passage groups earlier when you asked about Obama's My Brother's Keeper program. Right. Uh A lot of the problem with those organizations is they're not well-funded. You know, they're usually funded out of pocket, by somebody who genuinely cares and is trying to step up to do his or his or his or her part, but for the yeah, most part, yeah. they're, they're severely underfunded. And yeah, when they, like and when I they was hit thinking, some kind of go ahead. When they hit saying? some kind of when they hit go ahead. Well, I was just saying when they hit some kind of you know financial turbulence, they tend to go under. So there have been scores of black male-led organizations designed to help men and boys. Over the decades, but they tend to come and go with that particular individual's efforts. And if something happens financially, or you know, God forbid that that guy suffer health issues or you know dies, the organization tends to go with it in many different instances. But I'd say the primary issue is funding. And even when you had Obama's you know the, the program up there, many black men. And I've even seen this in the in the university system. We've not been acculturated to being able to, you know, really kind of secure that. So there needs to be, in my assessment, a greater attempt at reaching them. I'll give you another one. It's not even just those. If we look at the last year, right? We talk about programs that are designed to help small scale entrepreneurs during the pandemic. I saw three types of programs extended by either the government, local, or federal or philanthropist-based, you know, kind of structures. And those programs were either by, um, you had them targeted by race, you had them targeted by gender, you had them targeted by race and gender as it applied to black women. I saw, you know, entrepreneur support programs for black female photographers and drummers, and I did not find one for black males. And I've been asking this question for over a year. I had one person... Uh, just about a week ago, put a link up for a program he he said he found, but I think he removed the comment. I haven't been able to find the link that he supposedly put up. But but the point was, there's been no widespread attempt to offer support for black males, and black males don't, don't even expect it. We're not used to it because it's been such a long tradition of not having it not be provided in a way that is unapologetically targeted at black males. But we do yeah. see it happening with others. Shea butter commercials what? about helping black women entrepreneurs. You don't see that for black males. One of the things I wanted to interject was that one of our 
chatters in our chat room indicates that the Obama My Keep My Brother's Keepers program, which was launched in 2014, uh, has been uh, folded into the Obama Foundation, and it focuses on building safe and supportive communities for boys and young men of color. And you're absolutely mm-hmm. right. Uh, before we, st- we we get into the political platform for black studies and uh, political um, agenda, uh, to to what extent do you think that we can build the kind of advocacy programs that black men and black boys need uh, in order? to, I guess, infiltrate uh, programmatic approaches uh, to the uh, education and social services and housing programs, and who's who's going to be talking to who about it? Well, and that's we're at a very early stage of that, at least in terms of the Institute, because I, I pretty much started the Institute uh, with a friend asking me did I think that I would be interested in teaching in that manner. And so I did a poll. It came back positively, and I basically put it together myself. So I'm actually a part of the structure I just pointed out that, you know, causes many of Mm -hmm. black male-led ventures to fail. There's not a lot of backing. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of support, and it usually falls on one person. So I'm hoping to build beyond that, but that is where I am. In terms of the question you posed, I definitely think, that black men can do it, but it's going to have to require, if nothing else, a change in the culture by which we produce these organizations. I mean, it it has to come with some kind of larger structure in place that doesn't rely on one person, and it's going to have to require funding from a a diversified set of spaces. It can't be from one. One of the questions I was asked very, very early on was would I make the institute a nonprofit? And I've worked in the nonprofit sector over the years, and one of the things I found was that there was an interesting way that nonprofits can be controlled. I'm not saying they all are necessarily, but they can be controlled through funding, right? You know, whether or not they receive funding based on to what degree they're willing to follow uh, a narrative that they may not themselves be interested in following. But if they want to secure that regular funding, it ends up kind of shifting at times one's uh, mission to suit a set of values and politics that may be alien to the people who initially started it. So I've heard the term, uh, what is it? Um, uh, It's very similar to when they talk about uh, the prison industrial complex. They talk about the nonprofit industrial complex. I've seen that, and I've seen how it happens and how it shapes and reshapes mission statements, and I didn't want that to happen with the Institute, which is why I didn't attempt to create it within the boundaries of the Academy, because I wanted there to be actual free speech and free thought, especially as it comes to, as it relates to black male thought, um, you know, in a, in a way that's not apologetic uh, in regard to the black male experience. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I'm pretty much an, an ideas person and ideas are floating through my head, which may be, um, um, part of why I'm having such sleep deprivation lately. 
But um, mm. one of the things that I thought about is that the barber, the black barber shop, has become such part, such a part of the political uh, infrastructure in our community. And I'm wondering if you know there could be a network of bob- a large black barber shops that could provide the funding. Um, you know, uh, making co- commitments of uh, uh, five or six thousand dollars a year uh, to support building the infrastructure to to do this kind of, of of study and to be, you know, looking at a political think tank that's looking at um, public policy. Uh, around black boys and black men, but that's just an idea that that popped up in my head. Well, Let's talk for for the, the uh, a little bit. You have a black male political agenda that includes family court reform, education, affirmative action, targeted homelessness programs, targeted unemployment programs, law enforcement intimate partner violence, homicide policy reform, health, targeted uh, cancer campaigning, treatment and recognition. So a lot of stuff here. Targeted small business support, Social Security and life insurance, family support, paternity leave, reverse voter disenfranchisement, uh, black male-specific reparations, and the United Nations changing U.S. Uh, uh, charging the U.S. with geno- genocide of black males. That's a lot, but I think every one of those things, in terms of breaking the stereotypes, repairing the stereotypes, is is important. Hmm. How'd you come yeah, up well, with well, this? Well, I'd say this was mostly last summer. Um, you know, again, doing my, my weekly show on the Onyx Report. And, you know, of course, we're talking about politics. We're looking at uprisings taking place, protests taking place, you know, all kinds of issues. And, of course, it's all kind of leading up to, you know, November and what what's going to happen. And, of course, the big issue is getting Trump out of office, and this is what you're hearing. But what I noticed was I didn't hear – I didn't hear anything from black males in the public in the public sphere. More so, I heard them referenced, you know, by others, and kind of just it was it was kind of assumed what black males thought or felt about a variety of issues. Um, and this is why I talk about this concept of flat blackness and flat maleness. You know, on my show, I talk about flat blackness as this idea that black issues. You know, are just they're they're articulated in the interest of all black people. But when we do talk about gender, somehow black males don't have a gender, most particularly heterosexual black males. So they're not a part of a gender discourse, and that for me means that there's something left out when you actually do ask heterosexual black men what their political issues are. That there are not there are things that are not being included in the discussion, right? And, and at the same time, when I talk about flat maleness. I'm talking about this idea that you hear again amongst some feminists that you know because men all share you know a penis that they somehow have the same politics and they have the same ideas and so on and so forth. 
what we're finding is that both concepts, you know, really speak to how inaccurate a lot of that is and how out of touch many are with what black males are actually thinking. So when I actually posed to my audience, I said, look, send in your political, you know, wishes, your political concerns, the things you would like to see happen. I don't think I wrote, I think I may have written one thing on here. I think that, but everything you see on there was contributed by black men and they listed out their issues. And, and every week I would just, you know, discuss the new things added to the list. And what I ended up finding was when I tried to do a search, I couldn't find very much on what black male political agenda may have already existed. I didn't find a critical space where black men felt that they could come forward and say, these are my issues. But what I did find, whether it offends people or not, is that black men did have a long list of issues and concerns that I hadn't seen articulated in any one place anywhere. And so when Ice Cube came forth with his list, which I, you know, I appreciated, even though his wasn't targeted at black males, it was more, you know, in the interest of black America, you know, I said, look, I'm going to put this out so that it can be a resource that hopefully, you know, anybody who may be considering running or taking it to the next level could reference if they wanted to talk. So in other words, if you were going to have a political debate or anything of that nature, and black male interests, black male political interests come up, I wanted there to be a repository space where you can actually pull concepts written by black men themselves, like it or not. I don't particularly care if people like it or not. I care that it's articulated. And so that's how it came about. And so black men have just contributed, and they've still contributed uh, ideas to it, and I just add them in when applicable. And the very first issue they had was family court reform. That was a big one for a lot of black males. Um, But there's no doubt, law enforcement and voting access, all of these different things, education, were huge. They were huge. And, you know, and so I thought it necessary to put that forward. Um, And, you know, I'm just going to leave it there and keep adding to it as people send in ideas uh, so that we can actually begin to have clearer conversations and what you also also find is there is an, uh, there is a significant difference in what we regard as just a black political agenda and a black male political agenda. Black males, as does any as does every demographic, they have their own concerns. They have their own issues that tend to impact them differently than other demographics. And I just find okay. it interesting that few people seem interested in asking that question. Well, I want. Um our listeners to know that if you would like to get more information, you can go to thassanjohnson.com, and I posted it in our chat room, and also to look at this uh, black male political agenda, which is so on point, uh, Dr. Johnson. It really is. It's thassanjohnson.com backslash BMPA. Dr. Johnson, are, are you writing more? Are you, I mean, how are you communicating uh, the Institute's work? You know, that's interesting you ask because I've been approaching this in stages because I still, you know, I still teach full-time at Fresno State, um, and I am, I'm a single father to a 15-year-old son who is uh, halfway through his, his sophomore year. So I'm trying to balance a lot of different things. 
And setting up the institute, I launched it on November 18th. Um, there's one class on there, the Introduction to Black Male Studies, uh, that one you, know, you can sign in, you can take, and there are courses that drop every week, uh, or really every two weeks. There's two weeks' worth of courses that drop every two weeks that you can engage. Uh, and then I'm also having a lot of interviews that I'm posting on the site as well. And so if you actually go to instituteforblackmalestudies.com, you'll actually see, if you go into the store area, the lectures that are posting up there. So I just interviewed Carnell Smith, who is uh, what he, his term, he calls himself the paternity coach. So I did an interview there. I just interviewed Dr. William Smith at University of Utah and his work on racial battle fatigue and microaggressions. So I'm posting, you know, interviews with scholars and, and activists and thinkers and, and who I regard as black masculinists. Uh, that free content is available on the Institute website as well as a bunch of merchandise as well that I think people might find interesting. But I put that there. So getting to your question about writing, one of the reasons that I ended up pushing to build an institute and really even starting my, my show on YouTube, The Onyx Report, is I found that it was difficult getting published when I wrote works on black men, but especially if they were critical in any way of uh, feminism. And that's, that's white feminism, that's black feminism. What I found was that, you know, from a journal to publishing companies, there was almost a religious preoccupation with prioritizing the feminist lens. And if you critique that, more often than not, you found your papers rejected, or they would ask you to completely rewrite it, void of that critique. So I just decided, you know what, um, I'm tired of playing that game, and I want to be able to write and speak freely about the things I see and the concerns I have. So I started the Onyx Report in 2019 as an online radio show on innerlight.com, uh, and then I started it on YouTube as you know a, a video podcast, and it's just recently been uploaded to iTunes. So the Onyx Report with, uh, with Dr. T. Hassan Johnson, and from there I started to – really just kind of talk to people and, and share my thoughts on different things. And then, of course, November 18th, I launched the Institute, um, and I will be putting together a journal that will be open to scholars and as well as, you know, non-scholars who want to write on the subject from whatever their particular context is. Because I think we do have to start having conversations beyond the academy, uh, but that doesn't mean that it has to be, you know, that it has to lack intellectual rigor for that to happen. But I think we need to start having these dialogues and these discussions and produce relevant content on issues black males face outside of the academy. And mainly I say that for the same reasons that I had a problem with these journals and publishers within the academy. You know, the, it, it's such a difficult thing to be able to have these kind of free dialogues for black men that it, it, it just can no longer remain within the boundaries of it. I mean, again, that's what that's what takes Dr. Tommy Curry to Scotland, and that's what takes me online. The the need to have free discourse uh, that will hopefully lend itself to a political mobilization gesture, that will lend itself to organization building. But you, if you can't have it within the boundaries of the academy to even produce the ideas, then where do you go? I mean, you know, when I look at the last few years of protest movements, I'm hearing people reference 
uh, Kimberly Crenshaw and intersectionality and so on and so forth. Those ideas were produced in the academy and built and expanded upon, and then they made their way onto the streets. Well, if there's a silencing of black men in the academy, so much so that black men silence themselves for fear of losing their status and their careers, then there has to be a way to have these conversations in an environment where they can be, be you know, spoken of freely. And that's kind of what I've, that's what I'm trying to create, you know, so. So how, how can people it. get, how can people connect with you who are interested in, in advocating for black male studies? Absolutely. They can go to instituteforblackmalestudies.com. And, or you can, as you say, you mentioned my website, which is the hub for all the things I get into, um, com, And you can email me through there and, you know, share what you will. And, you know, if there's an opportunity for inroads, then we can definitely do that. Uh, because I'm trying to build this with help. I'm trying to, I'm really trying to bring people together around this. Because uh, there are a few spaces where it can already happen. I mean, you mentioned the mm-hmm. barbershop. But archetypally speaking, male spaces, particularly black male spaces, have really been labeled as toxic and problematic and have been slowly being, slowly being undermined for some years now. So, you know, even if you talk about the barbershop, which, by the way, you know, has been dramatically hit by COVID in the last year in terms of their financial standing, um, the institutions themselves have in many ways – become hair salons as much as barbershops. So so the space for black male speech has been changing over the last few decades, and there have been fewer and fewer spaces where black males could confidently and unapologetically speak about their experiences without, you know, being shamed or criticized for doing so. And that's, and that's, Mm -hmm. so so the Institute comes out of that, the need to address Mm -hmm. that. Well, I'm particularly interested in how you begin to draw in the work that you do at the Institute, the research of Dr. Tommy Curry over at the – and I'm still mad at him for – I mean, I, know, I understand. I was I – was, um, I miss his girls. I miss Gwinnetta. Uh, mm-hmm. Beautiful <laughs> I mean, family. Yeah. Um so one of the things that, you know, another idea that has popped up in my head is to somehow be able to sponsor a national conference uh, with, um, with the men who are part of the uh, Black Caucus <coughs> who are increasingly, excuse me, increasingly becoming more progressive and free to speak to issues of race in this country. You know, I want to know where are all the people who understood the um, the scene where George Floyd was murdered, who, black mm. men who watched that and understood it immediately about what was happening. And there are those who articulated that they understood but have done nothing. 
So or I'm or having thinking... had had the benefit of a platform um, to be exactly. regarded. You know, that's one of exactly. that's one of the other things that that hits a lot of black men. They there there are many black men doing all kinds of work, but they rarely get you know acknowledged on any major platform, and that even includes mm-hmm. the fathers of dis- of, of uh, killed victims. Right of police of police brutality or hate crimes, even the fathers don't get regarded, and you know so that becomes an issue unto itself. I, I you know I talk a lot about you know how we saw the Democrats really kind of bring in this notion of mothers of the movement a couple of years ago, and really kind of center them, but the fathers were completely ignored. Absolutely. You know, and I I yeah. I and I be, I begin to ask questions like okay. If we're seeing some of the mothers be able to parlay that attention, even into a political position, an electoral position, be it local or national, what then happens when the fathers are virtually ignored? And these fathers are outspoken. You can find one or two articles or something, but for the most part, they're not regarded. I think a lot of that Mm -hmm. has to do with people, people do not know how to emotionally resonate with black men. Because they see us as a threat, because they see us as a as a virtual boogeyman, and have done so really since you know post slavery, uh, they there's no resonating and empathizing with a black father who's lost his son. We can empathize with a mother, but we really don't know how to regard you know a black father in a, in many ways. And so when you look at somebody like Michael Brown's father. Who's been doing a great deal of work? I mean, even then, he was building his own grassroots organization. How you know how much support did it get? Mm-hmm. Where did the support go when it did come in? You know what I mean? These are the kind of questions that I'm posing that I don't think yeah. a whole lot of people really want to deal with. Yeah. Well, Doctor Johnson, thank you so much for for joining us. I hope that we can do some things to be supportive of what you're trying to do. Um, you know, and um, whatever resources we can lend to you in the development of the Institute for Black Male Studies, we certainly offer that to you. Uh, I I think it's very brave of you uh, to to, uh, do this undertaking. And so thank you so very much for for being with us and, and helping us to understand black Masculinism, uh, and as I know, uh, that's a strange well, word. Yeah, but it, it, it's funny, you know. Black masculinism, people do have problems with it, but it's just like misandry. You know, everybody knows what yeah, misogyny yeah. is, but when I when I ask yeah, about misandry, yeah. people just look at you. But I really I want know. to thank you, Mrs. Graham. I really appreciate you having me on and engaging the dialogue and your care and tireless work in the community over the decades, I really want to thank you. And as, as we say to the, you know, to the military, um, but I say it to black folk like you who've been putting in the work, I thank you for your service. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Um, it has been my life's work, uh, and I am honored to do it. I am required to do it. Dr. T. Mm. Hassan Johnson, and it is the Institute for Black Male Studies. Thank you so much. 
and uh, we'll have you. you back. Okay. I appreciate Bye-bye. that. So that is our program for tonight, and we thank you for being with us. Don't forget, on February, oh, you know what? You all forget to retweet, to repost, to share our announcements, and, you know, I'm just, I'm just telling you, uh, if we don't value it, it goes away, and I hope that I want to ask you, it's our common, it's, uh, our website is ourcommonground.com, and any time you need to find out what we're doing, you can find it there. I'm Janice Graham. Thank you so very much, and thanks to Dr. Johnson for being with us tonight. about the question of racism that, or at least in talking to people, the question that frequently has come up recently with me is, well, we are not guilty, personally, of course you're not. I don't know that there's anybody in this room has carried on a campaign of racism per se, but I doubt that there's anybody in this room who has not at some point been guilty of supporting a racist culture. And we must search ourselves to find out how we have been guilty. Not for the sake of just wallowing in our guilt, but for the sake of facing the fact that the future of our culture, of our country, depends not so much on what black people do as it does depend on what white people do. This is a hard lesson for some of us, that the choice as to whether or not we will rid the country of racism is a choice that white America has to make. Thank you for listening, and for those of you who have joined us in our chat room, please help us grow and let your friends and comrades know that we are here each Saturday. Have a good week. Prepare to fight the power. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Right now. Uh, Stand the cue. i
hope it's not a crime Cause if it is 